0: Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Shi, a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, a former Watergate special prosecutor, and an, now an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins, and today's pin is in special honor of our guest uh, because it honors military servicemen and women. Uh, It's a little hard to see, but we will post it in our show notes so that you can see the pin. Um, When I had the honor of serving as the General Counsel of the Army during President Jimmy Carter's administration, I saw firsthand the sacrifice and courage that our military service members uh, had. At the same time, I also recognized that there were many barriers like the existence of the Woman's Army Corps that prevented women from advancing to their full potential. I work with Congress to dismantle the Woman's Army Corps and with military leaders to open most military occupational specialties, which is the job you are assigned in the military, um, based on qualifications, not on gender. So that if you were physically able to do the things that a job required, You could have that job. It didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman. Since then, I've had an opportunity to work with the Pentagon once again, this time working on rooting out sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. And in that position, I learned a lot of lessons that I believe are applicable, not just in the military, but as we are now seeing to the toxic work environments that exist in civilian life. Uh, in government and in corporate life. Um, those things are very important that we pursue and look at, and we will talk to our guest about all of that.
0: Our guest today, Representative Jackie Speer of California, shares Jill's dedication to eliminating sexual assault in the military. We plan on talking about that, her time investigating Jonestown as a congressional aide, and what similarities it shares with the cult of Donald Trump, as well as her advice to young men and women of my generation hoping to enter public Service. It's going to be a packed episode, but before we get into it, there's more to learn about Jackie Speier. Uh, Congresswoman Speier was a fear, is a fearless fighter for women's equality, LGBTQ rights, and the disenfranchised who ha- has dedicated her life to eliminating government corruption while working to strengthen America's national and economic security. She was named to Newsweek's list of 150 fearless women in the world and one of Politico's 50 most influential people in American politics for bringing the Me Too reckoning to Congress. Congress. She proudly represents California's 14th Congressional Districts and serves on the House Armed Services Committee and as the chair of the Military Personnel Subcommittee on the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as on the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, where she serves on the subcommittees on Environment and Government Operations. Speer is also the co-chair of the Democratic Women's Caucus, the Congressional uh, uh, Arminian Caucus, and the Bipartisan Task Force to End Sexual Violence, and the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force. Thank you so much for being here, Representative Speer. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us today, Representative Speer. It's
2: great to be with you.
1: So we first met when you brought one of your constituents to testify before a Pentagon committee that I was a member of, and we were investigating sexual assault in the military, an issue that as Victor said in introducing you, both of us care deeply about. This is a big problem in the military, and as we are seeing now in other government offices and in civilian workplaces, too. Um, I've heard you say that the damage goes far beyond the impact on the survivor of the sexual assault and affects the entire unit or workplace. And I thought that would be a good place to start if you could
2: expand on that a little. Thank you, Jill, and let me just say at the outset how pleased I am to be on your show and how much I regard you as a um, profoundly articulate spokesperson for women and uh, someone who has, um, over the decades, shown that she's got what it takes to be a very um, effective. I'm blushing leader. if you can't see. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes. Uh, 20,000. Think about it. 20,000 service members sexually assaulted every year. And only about 5,000 feel they have the ability to report it because so many of them fear retaliation. So what it does to the whole unit is, uh, it creates a, um, a cancer and I can't tell you the number of service members who have said to me when they wanted to report, they were told by their um, counselor or by their commander, you don't want to wreck the service member's career. Um, You really don't want to do this. Isn't there a way you can just get over it? And as we all know, those who are victims of sexual assault, men and women, don't get over it. It is a scar that is with them, often the rest of their lives. And I chair the military personnel subcommittee. My job is to make sure that our service members are treated fairly, um, that they have the resources they need, that they have um, the support for their families and children. And most importantly, that they're safe. And under this particular framework, in which you have to report up the chain of command, you are not safe because oftentimes the perpetrator is in the chain of command or the best friend of the chain of command or uh, the commander is reluctant to do anything about it because they don't wanna have a blemish on their record when they're going to be up for promotion in the next six months or a year. So it is so important to take these cases out of the chain of command and put them in the hands of special prosecutors who are trained to handle these kinds of cases, have investigators who are trained to investigate these cases, and then make a decision whether or not to move forward with a case. But then you create the confidence among the service members that they're being treated fairly. That's such a great answer. And
1: I want to follow up more on that and explain to our audience right now that Uh, Commanders are, of course, not lawyers. They are advised by a staff judge advocate, a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps, who is a lawyer, but they are responsible for their unit, and when the complaint is from a member of their unit, and the commander could be a man or could be a woman, um, when they get a complaint from someone in their unit, it may often be against someone else in their unit, And there has been a perception that they, the commander, worry about how it will look that they couldn't control their members and that they are having this kind of problem in their unit. And so you have been a very strong advocate um, for taking the reporting out of the chain of command. And normally, if you were in civilian workforce, of course you wouldn't report it to your boss it's a crime, you would go to a prosecutor or the police and it would be handled totally separate and apart. So um, the number of assaults has not diminished recently. And so now there is some real attention to this, taking it away from the commander and looking for a different uh, view. And I'm just wondering if you agree with the assessment that there is a need to take it out and to stop discouraging survivors from coming forward. And you mentioned uh, um, retaliation. And of course, we've seen retaliation in the uh, episode with Lindsey Boylan, who was uh, complained about Governor Cuomo and was retaliated against. So do you agree with that assessment? And what do you think Congress
2: can do to change this? So I do agree with that assessment it's important to point out that the Uniform Code of Military Justice, under which you know, all these cases are handled, mm-hmm. is a creation of the Congress, not of the military, but of the Congress back in 1950. So it's our obligation, frankly, to improve upon that code, to amend that code, if it's not um, you know, representing the kind of justice that all of our service members deserve. Now, uh, I I will say that I've been working on this issue for 10 years, and I was hit with a stone wall within the military. And frankly, many of my colleagues, both Democrats and Republicans, did not want to rock the boat because it was somehow seen as being unpatriotic if we weren't supporting um, the services. Uh, But the truth of the matter is that we weren't supporting our service members. And you can't have cohesion, you can't have readiness, you can't have good order and discipline if you are allowing a perpetrator um, to be a predator and continue to assault people. Now, I can't take credit for this finally coming to a head as it has this year. Um, I give credit regrettably, painfully, to a young army specialist who was murdered at Fort Hood her name was Vanessa Gian. She was um, bludgeoned by a fellow service member in the arms room, was um, dismembered, was put into a tough box, and carted out to an obscure location where her body parts were buried in separate graves, and the perpetrator, you know, came back a second and third time with his girlfriend to pour cement over the uh, burial site. And for two months, everyone was looking for her. Um, We had a a terrible situation uh, in the criminal investigative division in the army because 93% of the uh, investigators Mm -hmm. were novices. They were apprentices. So they weren't looking at the Phone records of the perpetrator. I mean, they finally identified the perpetrator, but then, um, you know, it, it was on the day that they found her body, and they had plenty of opportunity earlier on to uh, take his phone to to check it. They didn't. They didn't um, do just some of the fundamental things you would do in an investigation like this. So her tragic murder became a a rallying cry for um, women who had served in the military. I Am Vanessa Guillen was hashtagged, and, and women and men, because you know, it happens to both men and women in the military, um, a disproportionate number of women based on their population, but um, the numbers are you know, like 60-40 in terms of both men and women uh, being assaulted. So it, um, it was her death, her murder, um, the grisly nature of it that really captured the attention of members that I couldn't get their attention to deal with this. Even though we had spent over the last 10 years, $2 billion, we figured, in more programs that, you know, we have zero tolerance, but nothing was really changing. The numbers weren't going down. The numbers actually were going up. And what was worse is that we saw it in the military academies. Yes. And, And that to me is chilling because, you know, I have the privilege of appointing these young cadets and midshipmen and to think that I now have to counsel, particularly the women, that they could be sexually harassed or sexually assaulted and they need to, you know, know that I have their back was, I shouldn't have to do that. Not for the next generation of leaders of our military, that somehow we're kind of creating that within the construct, into the culture. Um, and so, you know, things are about to change, but it's um, a lot of lives have been lost and a lot of lives have been uh, scarred permanently because. of it. I,
1: I want to stay on this track, but you mentioned academies and I'm going to come back to that because I think that's a very, very important issue. But um, I think you alluded to things are going to change, and that's partly because under President Biden, The Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin has expressed his willingness to change. Um, And as you know, when I served on this committee under President Obama, our jurisdiction did not include an ability to look at the chain of command. That was specifically excluded from anything we could study. But that is what uh, is now being looked at. And so are you pleased with what Secretary Austin is doing in terms of this issue?
2: So as you know, Jill, he stood up an independent review commission to um, evaluate this issue. It was on the heels of an independent review committee that um, looked at Fort Hood and gave a scathing report of um, what was going wrong there and why this happened. And all the changes that should be made. So, they, under Lynn Rosenthal, the chair of this independent review commission, they came up with recommendations. I'm very impressed with their recommendations. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, has uh, embraced some of them, but not all of them. And so, we intend, through the National Defense Authorization Act, to embrace more of the recommendations of the independent review commission because. Um, not only were they focused on sexual assault and sexual harassment, um, but they also um, wanted to create these special victims crimes and a special victims unit. So issues around child abuse and domestic violence and stalking, all of those other kinds of conduct uh, would be swept up into this kind of review and an independence that it desperately needs uh, in the
1: military. So w- what would you like him to do that he has not embraced?
2: So the system right now would have a report through the, uh, the TJAC, so the, the, um, the lawyer who's in charge of all the lawyers within right. uh, the military. Uh, we want to see this special victims unit report to the secretary of each of the services. Uh, We want to make sure that um, all conduct that's non-military in nature be subject to this kind of review because in the course of all of this, um, we became aware through a GAO study that service members who are service members of color are more likely to be charged with crimes than their white um, colleagues. And so if you Uh, take these cases out of the chain of command, there's this sense that there's going to be greater equity as well. So that's the direction in which uh, we are going. Uh, We want to make sure that anyone under the age of 18 um, would be swept into this kind of uh, protective uh, review Mm -hmm. and uh, also um, have the benefit of special victims counsel and the prosecutor that would review these cases independently of the chain. When
1: you mentioned Special, special Victims Council, um, it was one of the things that impressed me about the military was how they have developed um, a special process to help victims of sexual assault. And um, they have their own counsel, but they also have an advocate, and they have someone who will help take them to... Medical care or to counseling sessions, someone who will help get them new bedsheets so that they don't have to sleep in the bed where they may have been raped. Um, and so they have been, I, I would say, in some regards, ahead of the civilian population in terms of, of those sorts of things, but it's still within the military system. Um, and I want to go back to the academies, which you mentioned, because One of the most dramatic things that I saw when I was on this committee, we did field visits and we went to the Air Force Academy, was one of the places. And while we were there, we met some people who were involved in training the um, students. And I made assumptions about the caliber of people who are there that they would have, you know, I mean, you have to be really special to get into any of the service academies but the thing that we learned was that most of the uh... young men who were students at the air force academy didn't even have an understanding of what a healthy relationship was with a female and so they did not understand that a woman had a right to say no they didn't understand what the limits were if we don't start training them, therefore, at the academy, this is going to continue as they move up in the ranks to uh, higher and higher officer positions. So what has your experience been with the academies that that you think needs attention?
2: I actually serve on the Board of Visitors at the Air Force Academy, and um, I have been, you know, working on this issue assiduously, really, for or probably seven or eight years, and to see these young uh, cadets who've been sexually assaulted, uh, and the strength with which they continue to pursue their academic careers is, is pretty remarkable. Um, but it's chilling to know that now these are the best of the brightest. Yes. This is the cream of the crop. These are young people that have applied to the academies who've been selected by their members of Congress and their senators and who have high academic success, who are great athletes and show great leadership qualifications. And to think that 51% of the female cadets and midshipmen at these academies have experienced sexual harassment and only um, 1% have reported it. 16% of uh, academy men have experienced sexual harassment. In terms of sexual assault, Um, the cases are about 15% of the female uh, cadets have experienced sexual assault and 2.4% of the the male cadets. So there's a problem, and, you know, the the services have said to me, in fact, um, it was said to me when I was at Fort Hood, that one of the problems when they get these young recruits in today is, one, they have not dated. They go on group dates, so they don't know how to behave. And the second thing is they don't know how to drive. So they're about to drive these massive pieces of military equipment, and they first have to train them on how to drive a car because (laughs) they haven't had that experience. So, you know, it's a different universe of young people who are coming into the military and coming into the academies, but that doesn't mean that somehow um, you can get away with not showing each other the kind of respect uh, that you deserve. For sure. And I I would love to
1: spend the full time talking about this, but um, I think Victor would like to ask some questions um, from having looked at your book on Daunted. So Victor, why don't you go ahead?
0: Well, I mean, first, thank you so much for all of your work on rooting out sexual assault from literature. I think you said, you know, this is for creating a better, um, you know, life for future servicemen and women of future generations. So I know they will be forever indebted um, to what you're doing right now. But yeah, let's turn to your um, fascinating memoir, Undaunted, which I think may give you um, a unique perspective on former President Trump supporters. Um, You know, this is a, event that my generation may not understand fully, but you were shot five times and survived the Jonestown Massacre. So let's start with um, a very brief description of Jonestown, maybe its cult headquartered in San Francisco and its leader, Jim Jones, um, the massacre in Guyana, and and why you were there um, covering the Jonestown Massacre.
2: So uh, as you point out, Victor, Jim Jones was a, uh, a reverend, in a local church in San Francisco called the People's Temple. He had ingratiated himself with the political elite in San Francisco. Uh, he had two to 3,000 members in his congregation that could go out and walk precincts um, for candidates. And so he was um, held in in high regard. He served as chair of the Housing Commission and the Human Rights Commission at different points in time. He helped make sure that at the time Joe, um, that George Moscone, had there been attempted recall and they were successful in helping him stay in office. So with that backdrop, I was working at the time for a congressman named Leo Ryan, and a number of his constituents, young adult children, had gotten involved in this church because it was pitched as a um, a coming together of African-Americans and whites in a utopian kind of environment, uh, pooling resources, um, you know, creating a, a, a better worldview. And so it attracted a lot of young people, and it attracted a lot of people who were disaffected, um, a lot of senior citizens who um, were, you know, poor and without resources. So it was, you know, a combination of of people. Well, Congressman Ryan's constituents, the parents, um, came to him and said, you know, I'm really concerned about my young adult child gotten involved in this church won't communicate with us. They've given all of his uh, worldly belongings to the church. Then we heard from former members of the people's temple who had um, left and they talked about sexual abuse and physical abuse and uh, mind control. So Congressman Ryan decided he was going to find out. Meanwhile, um, Jim Jones decided to take about 900 of his members to a a commune he had been creating in Guyana. And he picked Guyana in part because the prime minister there was a Marxist and he kind of uh, was very um, attracted to the Marxist kind of world order. And he had been, there was a story about to come out in a news magazine about Jim Jones that was not favorable. So he, in the middle of the night, so to speak, um, took 900 members down there. And um, one member in particular eventually defected, uh, went to the State Department, to the embassy in uh, Georgetown, Guyana, and got out. We interviewed her. uh, And Congressman Ryan was kind a person that really wanted to see things firsthand. He wasn't willing to just take the State Department's View that everything was terrific there. People were happy, so we made the trip down there. Eventually, got invited to um, People's Temple in Jonestown, and you know, took a small aircraft to this beat-up runway. Um, got onto a dump truck, and uh, we were taken to this um, commune and in the jungles. I mean, it was a it was as you would expect a jungle to look like. It took forever to get to the to the commune. But you get there and you were pretty impressed. They were growing uh, crops. he had cabins. Um, you know, everything looked reasonable. There were members of the media who also were in attendance with us. And, you know, Congressman Ryan talked with um, all of the uh, the hierarchy there. We had gotten letters from family members. We were hand-delivering them. We asked to speak to each of them. Um, and. Uh, Over the course of the evening, one of the um, news reporters received a note that said, I want to get out of here. And so that's how we found out that, in fact, people were being held there against their will. To make a long story as short as possible, the next day, in an effort to get everyone who wanted to leave out, um, we get to the airstrip, and unbeknownst to us, a tractor-trailer followed behind us and started shooting it. Congressman Ryan was shot. 45 times, um, I was shot five times on that airstrip and left for dead. And it was a harrowing experience. Um, But it was an example of how uh, a megalomaniac had um, used religion to um, obscure his conduct. And over the course of, I don't know, 10 or 20 years as a pastor had become Um, in his own mind, so godlike that, um, you know, he could control people. And so that night, as I'm lying on that airstrip, word came down to us. That's before cell phones, I might add. This is 1978, um, that there had been this, they were calling it a suicide, where he had, over time, had trained them that they might have to do this white Knight trial. And they, um, he called them all to the pavilion, And they either drank this Kool-Aid-laced cyanide or injected it into their um, arms of children, and um, they died. Some 900 people died there. Uh, I don't call it suicide. I I call it a mass murder because I don't think those people were in uh, in control of their, um, their faculties. And so to fast forward to to Donald Trump, um, there are some similarities, frankly. Um, There is cult-like behavior going on um, by some of those who um, worship at his feet. And it was evident on January 6th when um, so many of these people took the orders from Donald Trump, go up to the Capitol, fight like hell. Um, We've got to win this and told them to go and overturn an election. And they came and uh, beat up on police officers and um, you know, ravaged the the Capitol and were looking to assassinate the Vice President and the Speaker of the House. So um, yeah, there are similarities. Yeah.
0: If I can go back to Jonestown and ask one follow-up question. Um, what were You mentioned that young people and, and, um, and older people were uh, really lured into this cult. I'm wondering what some of the tactics were that Jones used to really lure people into the people's temple and then not only lure people in, but also keep them in that cult.
2: So, you know, it, it wasn't advertised as a cult, of course. It was advertised as a church. And he was able to cure people. Um, he was able to bring... Uh, people in and and you know create a family. You know many of these people, whether they were young or old, um, were disassociated with family and they were lonely and they were looking for something that would somehow complete their lives. So uh, he provided that. And for young people who, you know, this is the you know 70s, looking to create a utopian world. It was after the civil rights movement. We were trying to you know, look at ways that we could all, um, live together. And they saw this as a grand experiment in, um, that kind of a, an experience. So there were, what was, what was strange about it though, that, um, was very obvious to me. It was, it was operated like a plantation. Mm. Um, the hierarchy of the people's temple was made up of white people and the African-Americans were, um, you know the worker bees, and um, so it it it, um, it actually it was more reminiscent of a, a bygone time when uh, people were being taken advantage of. Uh, in this case, as it was historically, it was African Americans.
1: So, given the similarities that you've identified between. Jones as a cult leader with the tragic outcome that that had, um, and the similarities to January 6th, uh, incited by President Trump, which I think the evidence is very clear he did, um, and the danger to our democracy. I'm wondering what you think needs to be done by Congress and maybe by the Department of Justice to hold the president and the Republicans who have supported him, who have continued his big lie? What what can Congress and what can the Department of Justice do to make sure this doesn't happen again and that he is held accountable, he and the Republican comrades?
2: Well, certainly the select committee is a first step in, in addressing that. Uh, the Department of Justice has you know, been bringing many of these uh, rioters uh, to court and charging them. Um, I, I think they've got to be charged not with a $2,000 fine, uh, but with um, you know, time and uh, significant fines to make sure that this kind of conduct doesn't happen again. What, what makes this so frightening to me is that the internet was used to bring uh, persons who didn't necessarily know each other together um, and in in that way create this um, anarchy. And that's, you know, many of the people that were engaged in these activities were Trump supporters, um, but many also were people that just wanted to overthrow the government and they saw this opportunity of using uh, Donald Trump, and D- Donald Trump saw this opportunity of using them. So it was this toxic brew. So we've got these cells of domestic terrorists in this country that we've got to ferret out. We, we've got to find them and um, hold them accountable for their conduct. When you had a, a group of people who decided they were going to kidnap the governor of Michigan, because they didn't like mask mandates and assassinate her. You know, yeah. where, where yeah. when does reality step in and, and, and prove that you don't do that? Um, and so I, I think that we, we have a lot of work to do and I think yeah. we're going to have to do a lot of um, intensive FBI intelligence yeah. work to find out where these groups lurk and what their um, what their goals are, do you think
1: that the Department of Justice has been aggressive enough, or should they be bringing more cases at a higher level and and by higher level, I mean higher level of felony and not just the people who were at the Capitol doing the damage, but the people who enticed them to get there from the President on down
2: you know Jill, i haven 't looked at it. Closely enough to make an assessment, I think the judge who opined earlier this week that you know the American people the taxpayers are picking up the tab five hundred million dollars to address all the damage yes. um, and the kinds of resources that now have to be spent to protect the capital versus you know two thousand dollar fines it 's like you know these these men and women were on some joyride um, and uh, you know they're getting slapped on the hands so It's serious. What they did was an attempt at a coup. And we need to call it that, and we need to hold them accountable for that. Now, does that mean imprisonment? And for how long? I I can't make that assessment personally, but I think we've got to call it what it was. It was an attempted coup.
1: I have a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag say this, not that. And it's things like, let's call it a coup because that's what it was. And there are many other examples. Call it a lie, because it is a lie. These aren't just misstatements. They're deliberate lies with an intended consequence. Um, And I think Victor has a a question he wants to ask before we wrap up.
0: Yeah, so um, maybe to end on a lighter note, um, (laughs) what advice do you have um, for my contemporaries who Um, want to become an elected official like you and I'm wondering now if your advice is the same for young men and women.
2: I think my advice would be the same for young men and women. Um, I think the advice that I would give you um, that I did not take was um, don't wait in line. Uh, Don't Don't expect someone to tap you on the shoulder and say, you should do this. Um, If you believe there's been an injustice, if you believe that you can um, fix what's wrong in your city, your state, your country, then you should put yourself out there and you should run. You do have to have a fire in your belly. Um, You do have to um, make a compelling case for why you are not someone else and be willing to do that. And you've got to be willing to fail. I love to tell young people that um, they're looking at a three-time loser because I've lost three times. I lost for student body president high school. I lost the first time I ran for Congress. Um, I lost for lieutenant governor of California. Um, but every time you lose, you really win because you learn so much more about yourself and you're prepared, frankly, to lead better. So um, don't be afraid to fail is the other That is great advice, and I'm especially glad you said it was the
1: same advice for young men and women, because when Victor talked to me about asking this question, I said, you need to rephrase it because I think it sounds sexist, because he was going to ask you basically what advice you had for young women who wanted to run. And I said, why are you limiting it to women? She's a woman, yes, but she's a member of Congress, and she can give advice to anyone who wants to be a member of Congress. So you've sort of settled the debate as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> right, Victor?
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, that was a perfect way to end, and um, Representative Speer, thank you so much for joining Jill and me today.
2: Well, it my great pleasure, Thank you. Victor. We, Jill, always great to be with
1: thank you. Thank you. I hope you'll come back again, and we'll talk more about the military. There's so much more to cover on that.
2: There is. There's lots of issues around suicide yes. and domestic violence and... So many other issues, yes. child care that um, we have ignored. So yes, yes thank I you. say yes, I'll come back. Thank you, fine.
1: thank you, thank you.
0: Thank you, Representative Speer.
1: Victor, I loved our conversation with um, Congresswoman Jackie Speer, and I want to follow up with you on something that, as I mentioned in our talking with her, that I was extremely disturbed at learning that the young men at the Air Force Academy really had never had the experience of forming a healthy relationship with a woman. And that the uh, leaders at the Air Force Academy, and by the way, the superintendent was a um, woman, a job she could not have held if the Women's Army Corps hadn't been eliminated. I just want to say that because uh, with, without that, she would have been restricted to jobs that were in the wax, not in the regular army. Um, That they were finding that they needed to really start training people in not just what is consent, but really what is a healthy relationship. And I'm just wondering if, you know, since it's your generation that's getting this training, whether you've had that training and how you feel about being able to form healthy relationships with other people.
0: You know, when I think of relationships, the first thing that pops into my mind is, is social media because I think social media does so much to weaken what I think is a healthy or, or maybe a meaningful relationship. Um, you know, a lot of the times my generation says, I'll talk to you and it's via text <laughs> rather than in person. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, during COVID that that was, um, you know, kind of an unavoidable thing. You know, you had a text, or you had a FaceTime, but still not in person. But I think, you know, when it comes to, Getting into a formal relationship or dating, you know, I think back to Me Too, and for young people, especially of my age, you know, we look to Me Too and we think of that big moment in history right after the um inauguration of Donald Trump. And I think that really changed things for how my generation sees at least formal relationships and dating. Um, you know. Afterwards, um, before we were going to do this chitchat, I told Jill, but you know it was my freshman year we had nothing I had no requirement of you know going through um, what consent meant or or what that means when you enter a relationship, how to approach you know a woman and, and ask for that, and um, my sophomore junior and senior year consent and teaching that was required in in all health classes, at least in my high school, and so I found that really interesting, and as a result, a lot of my friends, you know, maybe the friendships weren't meaningful, but the relationship that they were in, they really made sure to keep that in mind, because I think that was just such a big cultural um, uh, uh, kind of Sticking point for young people, and so uh, I think my generation—we're we're really understanding what it means for consent because of me too. And I'm not sure that would have happened if it weren't for me too. But I'm curious to hear what what your generation's experience with that and relationships, and how you think that's changed. You know, we've mentioned social media, but but what you think are some of the biggest changes since your time uh, dating?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously things are very different. Um, I would have never said I'll talk to you, and thought that it would be via text, um, it meant that I would actually talk, you know, and exchange a conversation where we talk simultaneously, not you say something and then eventually I read it and answer you. Um, But I think probably the issues were the same um, in terms of training. I, maybe there were healthier relationship images Uh, You know, this is the time of Daddy Knows Best and Ozzie and Harriet, and we saw families and happy relationships, and we didn't see so much of the abuse and harassment. But harassment was rampant when I was in college, I mean, in the sense of women weren't respected, women weren't expected to do all the things that the men did, and we just, we had no no, I had no sort of role models. I just had to figure out how to do what I wanted to do, regardless of the fact that I was a woman entering a man's field. And so I think that's important. But one big difference is that we dated. We went out one-on-one. We didn't go to the prom a bunch of girls and a bunch of boys. Uh, We paired up. And it seems like what I saw when I was on this committee looking at sexual assault is that in the military and in the academies, there are groups of people who go out. They're men and women, and they aren't necessarily an equal number of each. It's just a group goes out. And so that, to me, is something very different than my experience of dating, which was a serially monogamous relationship where you, are, you, know, you were with one person for a while, and then maybe you would break up and go out with someone else. Um, that may be the biggest difference.
0: I will just one final point on that. I will say that after talking with some of my friends who have um dating apps like you know tinder hinge you know bumblebee i uh, i um I haven't <laughs> gone through that yet but um, my generation, we also aren't as um, serious about our at least first relationships, or we aren't as serious about dating. Um, a lot of the time, young people actually kind of go through just a series of informal relationships and test the waters, which I guess you can you know, argue, you know, that could raise you know the possibility of um, misconduct. But it, we we don't take things as seriously with our relationships yes. because of the dating apps and the, the number of possibilities that we think we have, and so um, that's another thing that um, I think my generation is unique to my generation is just the number of dating apps out there and um, maybe the not so seriousness of the relationship. Wow,
1: that's really very interesting. And I, I, I'd be interested to hear from our audience about their experiences with both sexual harassment, sexual assault, dating, forming relationships. Um, I'd be curious as to how you see it, um, whether you're from my generation or from Victor's generation. Let us hear from you.
0: Of course, uh, you can do that via Twitter um, or email us. Um, but you can do that wherever you find your podcast. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of IGen Politics. Um, we hope you tune in next week for our next episode and follow wherever you get your podcast.